1: In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 24 and 25.
0: You cannot really talk much about the relationship of God and Israel without getting entangled with the real estate, the title deed, the generations and the genealogies which deal with the land conveyance. The land is an integral part of your perception about God's relationship with Israel. But here he says there's a Sabbath. um, uh, Shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord? Six years shalt thou sow thy field. Six years shalt thou prune thy vineyard and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard, and that which groweth out of its own accord of thy harvest shalt thou not reap, neither uh, gather the grapes of uh, thy vine unpruned. It is a year of rest unto the land. And the Sabbath of the land shall be food for you, for thee, and for thy servant, and for thy maid, and for thy hired servant, and for thy stranger that sojourneth with thee, and for thy cattle, for which the and so on. Okay. And it goes into some other interesting things, jubilee years and other Exciting stuff. Uh, you get down here to verse um, 20. And if you shall say, What shall we eat in the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow and gather an increase. Then will I command my blessing upon you in the sixth year that it will bring forth fruit for three years. Why three? Well, because you not only have to carry through the fallow year, but the seed time and harvest of the fallow see, In other words, it's thought through, see. And verse twenty, And ye shall sow in the eighth year, and yet eat of the fruit until the ninth year, uh, until her fruits shall uh, come, in, uh, uh, in ye shall eat of the old store. The land shall not be sold forever, but the land is mine. Who owns the land in Israel? God, you betcha. For ye are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession ye shall grant a redemption for the land. This then gets into the law of redemption, the whole idea that the, in Israel they didn't really sell the land, they leased it. And there's a redemption procedure that is very important. Jeremiah is going to deal with this later in his book, and it's going to give that insight. Will be essential if you're going to understand Revelation chapter five and the seven sealed book and all of that. We could also from here go to Exodus 23, where the same thing is sort of recounted. We will skip that. Let's well, why we're so conveniently here. Let's turn to Leviticus 26. Now, Le- Leviticus 26, we have a prophecy. Now, this prophecy in verse 32, it says, I will bring the land into desolation, and your enemies who dwell therein shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and will draw you out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then shall the land enjoy her sabbaths as long as it lieth desolate and ye are in your enemy's land. Even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbath. As long as it lieth desolate, it shall rest, because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when you dwelt upon it. And on it goes. Now, where am I headed? Well, we all know that the the King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and put them into slavery for 70 years. Why did Nebuchadnezzar have them as slaves, Seventy years. The answer to that turns out to be in 2 Chronicles. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Second Chronicles, which is the last chapter of the book of Chronicles, so you can go to Ezra and turn left. Okay. 2 Chronicles 36, and we're talking about the captivity of Judah under Babylon. Verse 10 mentions Nebuchadnezzar and so forth, and Zedekiah and all of that. And we get through here. We'll pick this up about verse 20. And those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons, until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. Persia ultimately displaced Babylon, as you know. Verse 21 is your key verse. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. See, Jeremiah is the authority for the 70 years. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept the Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. You're saying, Chuck, you're kidding. You're trying to tell me that for 490 years, Israel ignored the law of the Sabbath. They kept the Sabbath day and they created all kinds of things kosher laws, all this other stuff. But they did not keep the Sabbath of the land, for 490 years. And the Lord, in effect, says, okay, guys, you owe me 70. That wild? That's not one of Chuck Muster's crazy hypotheses. It's right here in 2 Chronicles 36, 21, an important verse. Now, that turns out to be, the there are actually four known uh, 490-year periods in Israel history, but I'll come back to that. Before we do that, I'd like you to turn with me to one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. You all know it well, as students of prophecy, Daniel chapter 9. And you all know the last four verses probably by heart, because that's the famous, one of the most famous prophecies in the Scripture, the, fam- the, fab- the fabled 70-week prophecy of the book of Daniel. Daniel 9, 24, 25, 26, and 27. And we won't get into that tonight. If you haven't been through the tapes, I commend them to you, but I'm really after the first part of this chapter, the most interesting part, I well, will say the most interesting, but a very, very precious part of chapter 9 is Daniel's prayer. Daniel prays, and as he prays, he gets intensely worked up, and that's you, you can even feel that in the English. You can feel his pulse quicken in the English, but in chapter Daniel chapter 9, it's the interrupted prayer of the Old Testament. And of course, this prayer gets interrupted by Gabriel coming with this incredible vision at the end. But in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, in the first year of Darius, the son of Asherus, the seed of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, bear in mind now, Daniel's unique in his career, deported as a teenager, put through postgraduate school, lived through the Babylonian period, rose to number two or three, I mean a heavy dude in the whole operation. They get conquered by the Persians. Daniel once again ends up being third in the kingdom. He, so his, his career spans two rival empires. A fascinating guy. Very interesting career. Now, it, incidentally, in chapter nine, about sixty-seven of the seventy years have gone by. Daniel's an old man now. He's no longer a teenager. He's an aged, aged guy. Okay, now, and I could I, I don't I don't get it all. I get this is one place. I got too many notes. So I'll try to skip some. Anyway, verse two. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years concerning which the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications and with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, and I prayed unto the Lord. And then he goes on and makes confession on behalf of his people. And as you read that, the verbs, especially when you get down to about verse 17 18, the verbs, the verbs pick up pace, and he just is almost trembling by the time you, when you read this, even in the English, you'll feel his, his pace pick up. And, of course, it's in chapter 20 that Gabriel interrupts the, the, the proceedings and gives him this famous, famous 70-week prophecy. The point I'm making, though, the reason I bring you here is the 70 years' captivity— is a um, is something that caused Daniel to go into prayer, and I want you to notice something. Daniel took Jeremiah literally. One of the profound lessons you can learn from the scriptures: every place in the scripture where someone is reading the scripture, it is the Holy Spirit makes it very clear they took it literally. Here. Daniel didn't figure the 70 years were about a generation or two or some symbolic period. He knew the 70 years were about up, so it was time to get in the prayer closet, deal with this. And uh, he took it literally. Every place in the Scripture, uh, the, the Holy Spirit clearly intends it to be taken literally. The most extreme example is Jesus Christ when he opens his ministry and reads from that passage which we call Isaiah 61, the first two verses. In there, in that rendering by none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, he reads Isaiah and stops at a comma, doesn't complete the sentence, sets down and says, this day is that scripture fulfilled in your ears. Thank goodness he stopped at the comma, because the part that was left is, and the day of vengeance of your God, and I would have ushered in the whole enchilada, and you and I would not be saved. And uh, praise God that he's tarried and allowed us to, to be in the kingdom. Now, something else about that you might enjoy, um, I have here a clipping that I clipped from the paper some years ago, but the title is from the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner. It dates this thing. Isra- the Israelis are back to biblical farming. Jerusalem, Associated Press, Israeli Jews are once again obeying the biblical law of the sabbat- sabbatical year during which the farmland must lie fallow. but our farmers are exploiting a variety of tortuous loopholes to keep their country in fruits and vegetables. Now, it quotes Leviticus that we just read. I'll skip that part of it. And indeed, the Jews have ever since set aside the seventh year as the uh, Shana Shemitah or the sabbatical year. The Shemitah applies primarily to the land that it may not be plowed, no crops may be planted, no fruit and vegetables picked. The sabbatical follows the Jewish lunar calendar, beginning and ending usually in September. Seems like an, an added burden for a country whose struggling economy leans heavily on exports of citrus, flowers, and winter crops. But there's a loophole. The Bible says nothing about land belonging to non-Jews. So every seventh year, all land owned by the government, the agricultural conglomerates and the small holders, is, quote, sold, close quote, to the state rabbinic, uh, by the state rabbinic, to a non-Jew, usually a Christian Arab. The buyer, whose identity is secret, signs a bill of purchase, whereby he theoretically owns the one million acres of farmland during the sabbatical year. Payment is postponed until the sabbatical ends, but by then the buyer is bound to sell the land back to the Jewish owners. He receives a small commission for going along with the elaborate dodge critics of Israel's union of religion and state call it a farce but to religious Jews it is a vital process for it enables them to work the land without fear of violating the biblical law <laughs> nothing's changed okay <laughs> you see the pharisaical mind there see so so uh, uh you 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 really have to you really have to um understand that that strange mentality that uh, goes through. And I'm not saying this is widespread anymore. There's obviously people in Israel that are offended by the practice, and but it's interesting because it shows at least they're giving substance to the letter of the law. Something you might find interesting, by the way, um, and that is this whole business of 70 weeks. We talk about Daniel, 70 weeks, the 70 years led to the 70-week prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. It's interesting that from Abraham to the Exodus, turns out to be 75 years according to Genesis 12, 4, and Galatians 3, 17, another 430. Or if you add that up, it's 505 years. But uh, under Ishmael, there was 15 years under the usurper. So 15 from the 505 means there's 490 good years in which they're in favor, from Abraham to the Exodus. From the Exodus to the temple turns out to be um, 591 plus 10 for the dedication. This is from First Kings 6 and First Kings 8. But anyway, it's 601 years. But if you study the book of Judges carefully, there are six servitudes, eight years under Mesopotamia, 18 years under the Moabites, 20 years under the Canaanites, seven years under the Midianites, uh, 18 years under the, a combination of the Philistines and Ammonites, and then another 40-year servitude under the Philistines. When you add that up into the Judges, there's 111 years of servitude in the, book of the, in the book of Judges. When you subtract the 111 from the 601, you get 490. So it's 490 years from the Exodus to the temple. Now, from the temple dedication to the Edict of Artaxerxes, which leads them back, that's the Daniel 70 week thing, 1 Kings 8, we find uh, we can essentially uh, time that to about 1005 BC. And then for Nehemiah 2, it's 445 BC, which is a date familiar to you. That's a total of 560 years. But that includes. The Babylonian captivity of 70. So 560 minus 70 is how much? 490. So that's three periods so far. Abraham to the Exodus, the Exodus to the temple, the temple uh, dedication to the Edict of Artaxerxes. Three periods of 490 years each, if you don't count those periods in which they're in servitude or in disfavor of the country. From Artaxerxes, Langemonis, unto the second coming of Jesus Christ is... 490 years. 70 times 7. The 70-week prophecy of Daniel. 493 plus 7 with a gap between. What's the gap? The diaspora. And uh, and so it's, time, it's the times of the Gentiles, to be more precise. Kind of interesting. don't know if it's right. thought I'd share it with you. Um, before we're through Jeremiah, we'll also talk about the application of a prophecy in Ezekiel, and how it might apply to the first and third sieges of Nebuchadnezzar, but we've got some more background to dig up before we go that far in this particular study. Seventy years, the 70 years captivity of uh, Judah in Babylon. Okay, we got to verse 12, it shall come to pass that when the 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity And the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolations. Now, this is also going to show up in Jeremiah chapter fifty, verse eleven through thirteen. We'll take it up then. But I think I would like just to to bring this more crisply and turn to Isaiah thirteen, the book of Isaiah, chapter thirteen, where the same prophecy is also mentioned, perhaps a little more uh, with a little more clarity. Let's turn to Isaiah 13, chapter 13, and we have uh, Isaiah's talking about the coming judgment upon Babylon, which is quite impressive because he's prophesying much earlier than Jeremiah. And we'll pick it up about verse 19. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are over. We're not even sure where they were, okay? Babylon will be in the same place. Notice verse 20. It shall never be inhabited. What? Babylon. It shall never be inhabited. Neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there. Neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. But wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and ostriches shall dwell there, And he goats shall dance there. And the wild beasts of the coastland shall shriek in their desolate houses and jackals in their pleasant palaces. For her time is near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. Prophecy of Isaiah. So Jeremiah has the same thing several places, but I thought it would be interesting to get a totally different view, namely Isaiah. Now, what makes this really provocative, if you want to visit Babylon, there's some ruins and some archaeological digs. And the Iraqi government has several times attempted to sponsor a project to rebuild Babylon as a tourist attraction to generate trade. And each time they start that, it collapses, doesn't seem to get anywhere, which I think is kind of interesting. There is, I am told, another recent attempt to reconstruct Babylon to draw tourist attraction. I don't know how you're going to draw tourists with that war going on, but anyway... It'll be interesting to watch that. First of all, I was in, what little reading I did catch was just some time ago, I understand they're going to build it nearby, but not at the original site, which I think provocative. I don't know why. Um, but also, I don't think they've built it yet. Maybe I may be out of date. I may be staying corrected on that. But we might watch with this biblical background. It should be very interesting to see what prosperity Iraq has trying to create Babylon as a as an inhabited site, because I think they're flying the face of some pretty heavy odds uh, trying to do that. So they have not read Jeremiah 25 or Isaiah 13 or Jeremiah 50, but we'll keep moving. Now one thing I might point out, God used Babylon, but he did not use Babylon because of its merits. Babylon didn't merit some special role for God to use it for his purposes, yet he used it for his purposes and we should all remember that, too, as God uses us. We should, it's a wonderful blessing to be used to the Lord, and yet at the same time, you must recognize that the Lord has his purposes. They don't imply merit in the vehicle. And uh, the reason Babylon was used by God was because, not because of Babylon's merit, but because of Israel's sin. Now, why do I make that point? Well, I guess I'm worried about the United States of America, because if uh, where Jeremiah points to Shiloh and the northern kingdom in his prophecies, which disappeared 100 years earlier and told us that Judah should have learned from that experience, I hear echoes in Jeremiah's words for our ears how we should learn from Judah's experience. We were a nation called by God to, be, to bring the light of Christ to the world. That's what na- Cl- Christopher Columbus' parents had that vision. That's why they named him Christ-bearer, Christopher. And the whole history of the United States, when you study it, say, for example, with the light and the glory of uh, Peter Marshall and David Manuel's book, they give you a whole different perspective at the or- of the origins of this country. And to see us now clearly have no pretense to being uh, ascribed as a Christian nation, embracing secular humanism and, and worse as a country, is God going to judge us? I don't know how He cannot. And will he use the same mechanisms that he used with Judah? I don't know. But there he used the enemies of Judah as his instruments. Will God use the enemies of the United States to be his instrument? I don't know. It's a very, very heavy thing that gives some prayerful thought to. But we'll keep moving. Verse 13, And I will bring upon that land all my words, which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah had prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves of them. Now, by he's talking now about the Babylonian slavery of Judah. Many nations and great kings shall make slaves of them also, and I will recompense them according to their deeds, according to the works of their own hands. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this fury at my hand, and cause all nations to whom I send thee to drink it. And they shall drink, and be moved, and be mad, because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup at the Lord's hand and made all the nations to drink unto whom the Lord had sent me, to wit Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, and its kings and its princes, to make them a desolation, a horror, a hissing, and a curse, as it is this day. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and his servants, and his princes, and all his people, and all the mixed people, and all the kings of the land of Uz, and the kings of the land of the Philistines, and Ashkelon, and Gaza, and Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod. That Edom and Moab and the children of Ammon, and all the kings of Tyre, and all the kings of Sidon, and all the kings of the coasts which are beyond the sea, Dedan and Tima and Buz, and all that are in the utmost corners, and all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mixed people that dwell in the desert, the Bedouins, if you will, and all the kings of the Zimri, and all the kings of the Elam, and all the kings of the Medes, and all the kings of the north, far and near, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world which are upon the face of the earth. And the king of Shishak shall drink after them. Well, a lot going on here. Uh, by the way, these uh, these verses here are connected by the septuagint to chapters 46 through 51 of Jeremiah. We're going to get into a lot of this in more t- detail later. Now, you notice the, you couldn't help but notice the expression here of the cup of his fury. Now, that phrase is not an unfamiliar phrase to you and I. We see it in chapters 49, 51 of Jeremiah, Job 21, Psalm 60, Isaiah 51, Ezekiel 23, Mark 10 and 14, John 18, Revelation 14. That is a very familiar phrase. Revelation 16 and Revelation 18. This cup of his wrath is a common phrase. How many times does it occur in the Bible? 14. Kind of interesting, I think. The cup can also be used as a blessing. We'll find that phrase in Psalm 16 and 23, Luke 22, twice, 1 Corinthians 10 and uh, 1 Corinthians 11, if you count all those up, it's seven times as a blessing. So it's an idiom used broadly, but we're very familiar with this phrase as a cup of wrath or his fury or his indignation, if you will. Now, from that we then go to this judgment of all these nations and the same nations are detailed in chapters 46 through 51 of Jeremiah, so we'll be encountering them again. And it starts from the south, goes to the north, from Egypt, if you will, to Persia, basically. The judgment begins with Jerusalem and Judah. Not surprising. Judgment always begins where? In the house of God, you betcha. Now, from verses 19 through 22, we have the Egyptians uh, who were themselves who were of mixed blood, by the way. Oz, you may recall from Job chapter 1, verse 1, that's uh, east or northeast of Edom. Um, the Philistine cities are mentioned there, all but Gath are next. Uh, the remnant of Ashdod, you may have caught, uh, that was because it was destroyed after a 29-year siege earlier and it was rebuilt in Nehemiah's day. And so it's the remnant of Ashdod as, that is mentioned. Edom, uh, Moab, Ammon, uh, these are all blood relations with Israel. Uh, that are mentioned, of course, Tyre and Sidon up in Phoenicia, we're familiar with. From verse 23 on, we get to the Arabian tribes. Dedan is a familiar one from Ezekiel 38 and elsewhere. Dedan was a son of Abraham by Keturah, and uh, in Genesis 25, verse 3, he dwells southeast of Edom. Tema is 250 miles southeast of Edom in Arabia, son of Ishmael in Genesis 24, also shows up in Job chapter 6, verse 19. Buzz is descended from uh, Nahor, brother of Abraham, in Genesis 22, and generally speaks of the northern Arabian tribes. And then we also had the uh, uh, the uh, Bedouins of the uh, of uh, Arabia. There we also had Cushite, Cushite elements run through here. Zimri is a puzzlement. Uh, we're not sure where Zimri was. Uh, he shows up in Numbers 25, First Kings 16, Second Kings 9. First Chronicles uh, uh, 7, 8, and 9. We're not sure, though, exactly where Zimri is. It's possible it's the same as Zimran, who is a son of Abraham by Keturah in Genesis 24, too. And if so, he, he apparently dwelt between the Arabian Peninsula and Persia in that general area. Elam and Media are mentioned here. Uh, they are east of the Tigris River. Elam is northeast uh, of the Persian Gulf, about 200 miles east of Babylon. And, of course, Media is north and west of Persia and forms an alliance with the Persians to become the Medo-Persian Empire that subsequently puts down Babylon and, in turn, is captured by the Greeks, if you're familiar with your ancient history. The Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and then, of course, the Romans.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry.